sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. We have a fantastic topic for you today and a great guest. Our topic is systemic racism. And our guest is philosophy professor Tim Golden, who teaches at the Seventh-day Adventist University in Walla Walla, Washington. Tim, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Thank you, Alan, for having me. I'm blessed to be here with you. You know, to the extent that the issue of systemic racism is relevant to the topic of religious freedom, which is, of course, the focus of Freedom's Ring, I go back to the antebellum era when the United States was divided on theological grounds, when the churches were divided theologically in their doctrine concerning the African race. So they called it a race. And of course, the South, the churches were quite adamant that slavery was biblical, and they had created, of course, a structure of, we might call it systemic racism. There are those today who question whether we still have a structure of systemic racism and the extent to which, if there is one, it's theologically based. So where do you want to start this conversation, Tim? Well, Alan, I think any consideration of systemic racism and its connection to religious freedom, which are both overarching constitutional concerns, has to begin with the Constitution itself. And when you study American history, what you realize is that the colonies, which were in existence in 1619, for 168 years until 1787, when the Constitution was first ratified, practiced chattel slavery. And that is systematic dehumanization and exploitation of Black African men and women for capital, for profit, for monetary gain. And the Constitution, which purports to be a document that celebrates liberty and freedom, rather than manumitting any slave at all, instead, through the famous Connecticut Compromise, a small state like Connecticut compromised with a larger state like Georgia, and Connecticut complained because Georgia was counting its slave population for representation in Congress, and Connecticut said you shouldn't be able to do that, and they had reached a stalemate just about. So the Constitution, as we know it today, would not exist but for a compromise where Georgia said we will only count our slaves as three-fifths of a human being. So it seems that the subhuman status of black people in the United States is the very condition for the possibility of our founding political document. So when we speak of systemic racism, I think we have to begin, and its connection between religious freedom and systemic racism, we have to begin with U.S. constitutional history and really reckon with a harsh reality 
that the subhuman status of African Americans is the very condition for the possibility of the Constitution as we know it. If that's true, then this means that so much of what we do today incorporates or is at least based upon this subhuman status of African Americans. And this affects nearly every area, I would argue, of constitutional law and litigation. It overlaps also, of course, into the free exercise of religion. Well, you reminded me before we started that it was only in the 1960s that the United States Supreme Court rejected the religious freedom claim to be entitled constitutionally to discriminate against blacks. Why don't you talk about the Piggy Park case? Sure, that's right. There's a case called Newman versus Piggy Park Barbecue, in which the owners of a barbecue restaurant in the American South, I can't recall which state it was, I think it was Alabama, but I may be mistaken about that. But in any event, the owners of this restaurant leveled a challenge against the newly passed Civil Rights Act of 1964. And their challenge was that it was an inordinate exercise of federal power against states to tell small business owners who they had to serve and who they could not serve in their places of business. So I want you to do more with that case, but I want to start by pointing out to our listeners that until 1964, it was perfectly legal to exclude blacks and to discriminate in any way, shape, or form that you wanted to. And even after 1964, under federal law, businesses with fewer than 15 employees under federal law are still entitled to discriminate against blacks. It's really quite astonishing. Most of us think, well, of course, discrimination is illegal. And, and that same law also uh, supposed to protect religious freedom and religious people from suffering discrimination. But under federal law, businesses can discriminate if they're small businesses can discriminate against, you know, blacks. I, I mean, against religious people, you can exclude Catholics, you can exclude Jews. You can exclude, you know, people of somebody else's religion, which whatever it is. But anyway, back to the Piggy Park case. Sure, that's right. That's exactly right, Alan. So back to the Piggy Park case, what we see is that these business owners of this barbecue restaurant wanted to argue and did argue in the Supreme Court of the United States. They had sincerely held religious beliefs that prohibited them from serving African-Americans in their restaurant. So we see a rather bizarre and troubling intersection of race and free exercise of religion in this instance. It's also important to note, as you pointed out, Alan, that when we talk about the free exercise of religion and protections for religious people, that the history of race and religion in America comes together quite nicely in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because the same law that effectively ended Jim Crow as you pointed out a moment ago, is the same law that gives Sabbath keepers, Seventh-day Sabbath keepers, for example, and Sunday Sabbath keepers, for that matter, the right to religious freedom in the workplace. And so race and religion come together in America in some fascinating ways that we tend to overlook. So the theological notion that 
you know, that undergirded slavery, is that still something that is alive in American life today? I think so. I think, regrettably, I, I think that that is the case. So there's a theological idea. I mean, there's an argument that the Civil War was really fought over two different interpretations of the Bible, right? One that justified chattel slavery and the other that argued against it. And so you have a lot of religious people who today retain some of those beliefs. I mean, if you listen to our political discourse nowadays, you'll see a lot of people who purport to be staunch Christians on one hand who spew rhetoric that sounds very troubling and very disturbing and very much like the rhetoric of days of old. So I think these two things come together. I think when we talk about systemic racism, it's important to remember that we're not talking specifically about individuals, but we're talking about systems and the way that systems and institutions function often very much independent of the individuals who participate in them, such that you can have a good police officer as an individual, but if that police officer is, for example, part of a system that's governed by a constitution and laws, that the condition for those laws was the subhuman status of African Americans, then regardless of how well-intended that police officer may be, that police officer is operating in the context of what we would call systemic racism. So the theological part is, I think, still there. And the systematized part of it is very much, I think, alive and well. I think a lot of Christians don't understand or don't see that there's systemic racism because it's something beyond their own experience. And unless we are engaged with people who are on the receiving end, you know, we may not be aware of it. I had a very early exposure in my law practice when I was rep. I had a civil rights case, a false arrest case on behalf of an African-American gentleman. And what I encountered was the expectation that because the federal jury pool in my county was drawn from homeowners, not renters, we would have an all-white jury. And that our chances of winning at a jury trial were slim and none, basically. That we were encountering a system that was pretty much stacked against us. And this was not in a southern town. This was in a county outside of New York City. You know, when I was in college in Boston area in the 70s, it was plain with the riots and things over busing that racism takes a different form in the North than it does in the South, but it's no less, you know, a problem in other parts. It's not just a Southern issue. It is not, Alan. I would just urge people to take a few moments and consider the busing, the school busing controversy in Boston in 1976. That's and when I showed up there for school. Yeah. <laughs> if you pay close attention to the, the behavior of whites in Boston who did not want black students coming to their school, it's indistinguishable from the Little Rock Nine in Arkansas or from James Meredith attending the University of Mississippi. 
And so we we have to be careful. And your point is is really well taken and, and nicely illustrated there. Whether it's Boston in mid 1970s or Mississippi in the mid 1960s, racism is a pervasive phenomenon. And one of the things we tend to do, if I could just make one last point real quick, one of the things we tend to do is absolve the North of any moral responsibility for slavery because we tend to blame it on the South. Now, the South has a lot of culpability here, but let's be real. The national economy, North and South, benefited. Of course. So the North doesn't have clean hands either. You know, a lot of the public debate today in terms of systemic racism is focused on criminal justice, on policing, etc., um, which is a very inflammatory subject for so many people. But education, I think, is instructive because, you know, the Supreme Court Brown versus Board of Education, you know, rejected and overruled the concept of separate but equal. Well, the reality on the ground is that today, 80% of African-American students are in largely black schools. Only 20% are attending schools that are predominantly white. We still have segregated education. And because of the way schools are funded through local tax revenues, the funding of those schools is grossly unequal. So in wealthy counties, the schools in white counties, the schools have more resources and attract the better teachers. And so this is what, you know, an example of what we mean by systemic racism. Well, that's right, Alan. And I'm afraid we could talk about this for a long time and we are out of time. Our guest today, Tim Golden, professor of philosophy at Walla Walla University, Tim, thanks for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thanks for having me, Alan. As we close, remember, freedom is not free. Be informed, get involved. Join the North American Religious Liberty Association, producer of Freedom's Ring, on the web at religiousliberty.info. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Rana. Till next week, keep freedom ringing. <laughs>